This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. We're talking today with the Reverend Dr. Kim Riddlebarger, author of A Case for Amillennialism. In the volume we're discussing today, The Man of Sin, Uncovering the Truth About the Antichrist. These volumes are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Kim is visiting professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary, California, co-host of the White Horse Inn, and pastor of Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, California. Hi, Kim, and welcome to Office Hours. Good to be with you, Scott. I recently heard a prominent evangelical scholar say that, in effect, eschatology doesn't really matter. (laughs) I would imagine that you disagree. Why should the listener care about eschatology and about this issue in particular, the man of sin and the Antichrist? Well, let me answer those questions in the order in which you asked them. First of all, when I hear a noted evangelical say that eschatology is not important, I wince at that, as you point out, because how we understand the end of times is a byproduct or a logical conclusion, better, of how we read the Bible. This, to me, is is a question of how we pick up our English Bible, how we read it, how we understand the story of redemption. And since everything in the future is based upon Christ's finished work in the past, if we properly understand what Christ has done and is doing and in his dying and his resurrection from the dead, that frames everything that will come to pass. So eschatology is very, very important, and it really is a question of how we read the Bible, how we understand the course of redemptive history. Now, as for the Antichrist, it's a fascinating topic in Scripture. I had originally written a chapter on the Antichrist for my book, Case for Millennialism, and Baker pulled it because of space limitations, and I thought, you know, this is a topic that I just barely scratched the surface, and I'd like to investigate further. So uh, that was the basis for the second book, The Man of Sin. And it discovered as I was working through the topic, it's a very rich uh, and important subplot in redemptive history, and that is this archenemy of Christ, the supreme opponent of Christ, and therefore the supreme opponent of the gospel. You're Reformed, you're an amillennialist, and some people might be surprised to see a Reformed amillennialist writing a book about the man of sin and the Antichrist. How do you reconcile those two things? Well, as you certainly know, and as many of the listeners will realize, the Reformers with one voice saw the papacy or the sitting pope as the Antichrist. I mean, the Westminster Confession enshrines this we have identified a historical person as Antichrist, and that has tended to, I think, weaken some of the interest. Some of the biblical passages that speak of the man of sin are passages that are not necessarily fulfilled by the papacy. So I think you see a new generation of reform writers. I see this in Anthony Hookema. I see this in Gerhardus Voss and his Pauline eschatology. Other writers saying, look, the papacy manifested all of the signs of Antichrist. But Paul is really clear that something is restraining this man of sin, this final Antichrist. And so while we see glimpses of this in history, in fact, glimpses that are so profound that some or all of the signs of Antichrist are actually present, say, in the papacy of the 16th, 17th century, 
fact matters, in God's time, it's not yet. So it's only natural, I think, that Reformed Christians who have traditionally looked to Rome as the uh, seat of the papacy would you know, kind of stop the investigation at that point. But I think when you look at passages like Second Thessalonians, Revelation chapter 20, in the, in the context of the debate between amillenarians and premillenarians or postmillenarians, at that point, it becomes pretty clear that there is a future manifestation, a future personification of evil, commonly called the Antichrist. You touched on this earlier, but what do people expect? Particularly, I'm thinking of American evangelicals. What do evangelicals typically expect relative to the Antichrist and or the man of sin? Bad thing, Scott, is that modern and contemporary evangelicalism has been dominated by dispensationalists who believe that all of the end times events center around the return of Israel to the land, Israel dwelling safely in the land of Palestine in its ancient home, and based on a misreading, a, a bad misreading of Daniel chapter 9, they look to a seven-year tribulation period that is marked by the rapture and is characterized shortly thereafter by the revelation of the Antichrist, who makes a deceptive peace treaty with Israel, and in the middle of this seven-year tribulation period, in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, proclaims himself to be God and betrays Israel. That's how most people in today's contemporary evangelical world understand the Antichrist. The sad thing is that while they're focusing on the personification of evil and the man of sin, they speculate to no end about everything that goes on in the Middle East, uh, anything that happens between Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia, the Palestinians, Israel, all of that is rammed into this dispensational grid. So these folks are very adept at finding current events, relaying them to Scripture. That gives relevance to the Bible and so on. The sad thing is, you can't read the Bible in light of current events. You have to compare Scripture with Scripture. So again, at the end of the day, the problem is, this is a fundamental question. How do we read and understand the Bible? How do we plot out the course of redemptive history? And I do not believe that we can read the Bible in light of current events. I don't think we can see something happen on Fox News or read it on the Dredge Report and then go going through the New Testament to try and find a Bible passage that explains that. I think that's a very dangerous procedure. You're listening to Office Hours. I'm Scott Clark. We're talking with Dr. Kim Riddleberger, visiting professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary, California, and pastor of Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, California, and co-host of The White Horse Inn, about his book, The Man of Sin. One of the many topics you address, and just so you know, I wrote down 18 questions, so I don't know if we're going to get through all of these, but... <laughs> One of the many topics that you address in this book is the relationship between Christian Zionism and eschatology. What is Christian Zionism? Well, Christian Zionism is a movement that desires and seeks for the return of Israel as a nation. It goes back to the Balfour Declaration after World War I when the League of Nations and the United Nations thereafter decided that uh, there should be a chunk of ground in Palestine called Israel, which would be the ancient homeland for the Jews. Now, dispensationalists see this as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that God made to Israel back in Genesis 12 and 15 and 18 and 22 and on and on. He would make Abraham's descendants a great nation, a multitude so vast they could not be counted, and that they would dwell in the land from 
the river of Euphrates over to the Red Sea. And so dispensations believe that end times really get rolling with the return of Israel to the land in 1948 and the rise of the nation state of Israel, and they see this as the fulfillment of all that God had promised to Abraham. So Christian Zionism then is the movement that sees this political reality of the nation state of Israel as if a fulfillment of Bible prophecy is sort of a divine right, and that all of end times center around this uh, return of the Jews to their ancient homeland. So that you have people like John Hagee and others basically saying the gospel centers around Israel becoming a nation again. And that if you do not uh, understand this in terms of the Abrahamic covenant, you're denying the gospel because you're denying the promise made to Abraham. So this is a serious issue for these folks. And, you know, the irony is the New Testament is pretty clear that when we trust in Christ and are justified by grace alone through faith alone on account of Christ alone, we become the children of Abraham, heirs of the promise. We receive the Holy Spirit, which is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. And so that promise is fulfilled in Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with Israel's return to the land in 1948. That said, as an amillenarian, whenever I talk to anybody about eschatology today, the presence of Israel back in the land is the pink elephant in the room. It is a remarkable development in the providence of God for whatever purpose he has for that. It is a remarkable thing that Israel's back in the land. It is a remarkable thing that Jews are returning to Israel and establishing some sort of self-identity again. And I see this in terms of God's providential purposes to bring in Jews back to saving faith in Christ by making them Christians by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ, alone, grafting the torn off olive branches back into the righteous root of Christ. So now I have a place for this in eschatology, but it really is remarkable. And as amillenarians, you know, we have to realize that when we call down fire on Christian Zionism for biblical reasons, people are still looking and saying, all right, you're going to do that fine. Why is Israel back in the land? We do have to deal with that question. Is it fair to say that one difference between amillennialism on the one hand, and we'll come back and define that in a second, and dispensationalism on the other, is that amillennialism looks at Jesus Christ as the center of God's revelation and redemptive work in history, and dispensationalism sees national Israel at the center of God's redemptive plan and redemptive revelation and history? The short answer to your question is yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I think you've, you've nailed it. In fairness to dispensationalists, there are two operating assumptions, and I was a dispensationalist for much of my life and know the system pretty well. Their two operating assumptions are, one, that we read the Bible literally, which translates into reading the Bible literalistically. I don't think the dispensations can make good on their own promise for a whole bunch of reasons I talk about in both my books. The second dispensational presupposition is that God has two programs of redemption, one for national Israel and one for Gentiles. So they would deny that they read the Bible in a Israel-centered hermeneutic and deny that they don't have a Christ-centered hermeneutic but their Christ-centered hermeneutic really is typology. It's looking for the ways Jesus is hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. It isn't to see the person work of Christ as the sum and substance of all of redemptive history. So they do have a place for Christ in their system, but it's kind of trivialized. Um, how do we find Jesus in the three stones of Goliath? You know, those kinds of things, as opposed to seeing 
David as a type of Christ. It's a, an interesting way in which they handle those passages. Uh, it's also fair to say that dispensations themselves, like John MacArthur will say, the Bible mentions Israel 2,000 times. Israel always means Israel, so there. It is taught that Israel is the center of Scripture. And when you start to look at those you know, passages and you start to calculate them, you realize that most of them, the vast majority of them, are, of course, in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, when we read of Israel, we're talking about the future course of Israel in relation to the Gentiles, primarily in Romans 9 to 11, and there, where Israel is mentioned the most often, there's no mention of return of the land, there's no mention of millennial kingdom. As a matter of fact, the only thing that is mentioned clearly is that Israel is grafted back into the root, who's Christ. So I think the dispensations can't make good on their own promises. It's a matter, isn't it, of question begging. We assume the conclusion, right? My pastor, when I was a boy, said, uh, all means all, and that's all that all means. And so every time he saw the word all, particularly relative to the atonement, he knew before he ever read the passage what it had to mean. Oh, certainly, certainly. And that's what dispensationalists do with these two presuppositions. And I think that's why it's so important whenever... Christians encounter dispensationalists that they force the dispensations to acknowledge what their operating assumptions are, and at the same time be willing to acknowledge what the operating assumptions are for Reformed amillennialism. Because if you aren't willing to acknowledge your presuppositions, they become very dangerous. They become, as you point out, uh, kind of a Procrustean bed that everything has to fit within. And I think we need to be real clear about our operating assumptions and constantly allow those operating assumptions to be challenged by Scripture. When you do that, and are clear about what dispensations have actually said their presuppositions are, then you're in a much better place to show why the system doesn't fit, why it obscures large sections of the Bible, as opposed to amillennialism, which has far fewer problem passages and makes sense of entire tracts of Scripture that dispensationalists just obscure. Kim, one of the terms you've used repeatedly is the term amillennial or amillenarian. What do you mean by that? An amillenarian is someone who believes that Revelation chapter 20, the only passage where the thousand years is mentioned in the entire Bible, is a description of the present period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. We don't see it as a golden age, either before or after Christ comes back, but rather it is the present period of time, is the period of the church militant on earth and the church triumphant in heaven. You're listening to Office Hours. I'm Scott Clark. We're talking with Dr. Kim Riddleberger about his book, The Man of Sin, Uncovering the Truth About the Antichrist. When we come back, I have a question for you, Kim, and that is this. When some evangelicals hear you and me and and other Reformed types interpreting Scripture, they describe it as spiritualizing the Bible. And when we come back, I want you to answer that question. Why is it the case that you are not spiritualizing Scripture? In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474, Westminster Seminary, California. 
for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. The reason why I think the charge that all millenarians spiritualize the Bible falls flat on its face because that's exactly what Jesus and the apostles do when they read the Old Testament. The dispensations will say, standing, say, in Genesis 12, looking forward through the course of redemptive history, God made this problem, this promise to Abraham. Therefore, this promise is fulfilled in Israel. Therefore, when I come to the New Testament, the Old Testament has already told me what to expect. On its face, that sounds like the way in which we should read Scripture. The problem is, in the middle of redemptive history, God does something utterly remarkable. He takes to himself a true human nature, enters the course of redemptive history, and Jesus himself and his apostles tell us what those Old Testament prophecies regarding Christ truly meant. So, for example, Moses, writing the Pentateuch, describing the promise in Abraham, could not possibly have foreseen the coming of Christ in the way in which Christ did and the things that Christ actually accomplished in his death and resurrection. All those things were hinted at and prophesied, but they were in type and shadow. They were in darkness. The substance was there, but the clarity wasn't yet until Christ came and actually accomplished these things. Once Jesus does this, the entire New Testament takes on a sense of what was promised is fulfilled. Everything in the New Testament from fulfilled prophecy, which was one of the great arguments for the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of the Bible, to the set of promises that Christ gives based on what he's accomplished in his death and resurrection, all of that then becomes the means by which we as Christians look back at the Old Testament. All that is to say, I'm a Christian, I'm not a Jew. I look at the Old Testament in its original historical context to understand it, but as a Christian I read it through Christ-centered glasses, and I read it as... Jesus taught us to read it. I know that because after Christ rises from the dead in Luke 24, he sees two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, lamenting all the horrible things that had just happened with Christ's death, uh, not yet aware of the meaning of the resurrection. And Jesus himself walks along with them, and he opens up the Old Testament, Psalms, the Law, and the Prophet, and explains to these two disciples that he was the sum and the substance of redemptive history. So I think it's very clear that our Lord himself tells us that he is the one who fulfills the Old Testament. He is, therefore, the true Israel. He is the true promised land. He is the true temple, the true obedient son of God, all of that stuff. And we know that because Christ himself teaches us that. So I think the charge that we spiritualize the Bible falls flat. I think that's one of the weakest arguments dispensationalists actually have. And I think it exposes their own inability to make good on their literal interpretation. As one who was raised in dispensationalism, one of the things that our churches were really strong at doing was cult evangelism. We could take on a Mormon, we could take on a Jehovah's Witness, and we did it because we were able to argue that the New Testament interprets the Old. So when those cultists would pull out some Old Testament passage and say, no, 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 you have to understand the deity of Jesus in light of Proverbs 8, the wisdom passage, we would say, yeah, we can, because the New Testament tells us who wisdom personified is. The irony is dispensationalists can't follow through on that same principle when they talk about eschatology. Isn't the hermeneutical, that is, interpretive problem of using the Old Testament to lever the New Testament, that once you've decided what the Old Testament has to mean, 
there's no way for the New Testament to correct your understanding of Scripture. That's exactly right, and that's why I tell people who dialogue with dispensationalists, stop treating Bible verses with them, and go back and raise the question of your operating assumptions. Does the New Testament interpret the Old, or does the Old set in stone what the New Testament has to mean? You've got to answer that question, or else you're just going to have one of these, no, my verses say this, well, my verses say that, and you never get anywhere. You've got to go back and unravel that and, and expose that point, and then debate the question in light of the ultimate operating assumptions. That's the only way to get any resolution here. One of the concerns that fuels the dispensationalist understanding of Reformed theology, or misunderstanding frequently, is that it seems to them that we have a way of making the future go away or be less important. And in fact, one of the things that you do in your book, The Man of Sin, Recovering the Truth about the Antichrist, and also your volume on amillennialism, is that you have a robust view of the future. But there is a movement in some segments of evangelicalism and even in the Reformed churches that does have a way of making the future go away. What's that movement called, and why is it significant? Well, you're speaking of preterism, and it takes several forms. One is a heretical version, full preterism, which argues that Christ returned in judgment upon Israel in AD 70, and that at that time ended the Old Testament order and brought about a completion of all things so that there is no bodily resurrection. When you die, you receive your spiritual resurrection body. It means that history will have no end. It means that our Lord himself does not bodily return. He rather return invisibly in the sky over Jerusalem in AD 70. That position is, has been regarded as a heresy because it denies the bodily resurrection of the believer, and it denies the bodily return of Christ at the end of the age. Now, there's a subset of that, which is not heretical, called partial preterism, and it's a view that basically says Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 19, Luke 21, the, the passages where Jesus is telling his disciples about the future, known as the Olivet Discourse, that those events are largely fulfilled, or entirely fulfilled, by the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple in A.D. 70. And therefore, the book of Revelation was written before A.D. 70, and the beast and the evil personages that appear in the book of Revelation are fulfilled by Nero and the Roman imperial cult. So they would see, basically, the New Testament as already fulfilled, with the exception of a brief apostasy at the time of the end, Christ's appearance, the second coming, which is bodily, and the resurrection of bodily believers at the end. So they're orthodox on those points, but they, as you point out, in effect, remove all the future eschatology from the New Testament. Now, I think there's a reason why most preterists, at least the ones I encounter, were formerly dispensationalists. There's a real tendency to read the Bible in a literalistic way, not to allow Jesus and the apostles to interpret redemptive history for us. And there's a tension between you know, things fulfilled, things yet to be fulfilled, and like a rubber band, when you cut it, it shoots in one direction or the other. I think there's a tendency to say, if everything's future, then dispensationalism is the natural impulse. Everything pushes ahead to the future. Very little has already been fulfilled or preterism, which says, no, it's all been fulfilled. And that gets away from this tension you find in the New Testament, this intentional tension between things already fulfilled, things not yet fulfilled, the already 
and the not yet. And I think most preterists and most dispensations would take issue with that tension and say that they've solved the problem by pushing everything in the future or everything into the past, when in fact the New Testament sets up this already not yet tension purposefully so that we as Christians live the course of our lives based on what Christ has accomplished in light of the future hope that is ours because of what Christ has accomplished. So I see it as an impoverished way to read the Bible. I think you miss out on the, the hope that is given us because of Christ's finished work, and you, you lose sense of those passages where, where Paul does speak of the blessed hope, the glorious appearance of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And it, this is something Christians are to long for. And one word that I would like to see Reformed Christians steal back from Calvary Chapel is the Aramaic you know, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That ought to be our prayer as well. The listener has been very patiently waiting through this interview, listening to lots of important, even fundamental questions. But at the same time, he's still thinking to himself, okay, great. I get most of that, but I still want to know, who is the Antichrist? How do you deal with that, Kim? Okay, great question. You know, I since I blog and write and lecture on this, I am dumbfounded by the number of people who have approached me in the last six months sincerely and honestly asking me if Barack Obama is the Antichrist. Because it is an important question, and people ask me and try and tie to contemporary events in ways that just shock me. I think it's very clear as you look at the course of redemptive history that there is a Christ and an Antichrist. There is the seed of the woman, there's the seed of the serpent. This is a subplot throughout Scripture. And at times we see Satan utilize empires, their economic and military power against the people of God. Egypt and Pharaoh is a classic example. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, other classic example. Tychus Epiphanes and the Seleucid Empire is another example. The Roman Empire is another example. All these instances wherein God's people live under the oppressive thumb of some ruler who sees himself as usurping divine rights, and the authority that belongs to Jesus Christ alone. And that's what we as Christians are worried about, is when the powers that be, the state, assume divine prerogatives, claim for themselves divine honor. At that point, our radar should be up, and we should be saying, ah, this is a potential antichrist. This is why the reformers were right to identify the papacy, because the papacy was able to uh, basically send the armies of France and Italy and Spain into Belgium and persecute and put to death as many as 25,000 Reformed Christians, the Council of Sorrows. So we've seen this in the past, and I think that what Christians ought to be looking for is something very, very, very simple and fundamental. When we say Jesus is Lord, by definition we're saying Caesar is not and nothing offends Caesar any more than for a Christian to say, Jesus is Lord, not you. And that to me is the kind of the bellwether test here, is when a state leader assumes prerogatives that belong to God, he doesn't see his authority as limited and granted unto him by God, he sees himself as someone worthy of people's worship, he hates it when Christians naturally have to oppose him because their allegiance is to Christ. Let me give you one concrete example of where this can be seen in our own culture. Most of us are familiar with the World at War series, and there's this frightening snippet in there, uh, right after Kristallnacht in the 1930s, of German school children marching into some state-sponsored pageant, and they're in their 
Christmas finery. There's a large Christmas tree. The kids are singing perfect order, perfect pitch, perfect harmony. They march into the room. Camera pans up at the top of the Christmas tree is a swastika. And the children are singing, Hitler is our savior, Hitler is our Lord. So if you want to know what the Antichrist is, you want to know what the beast is, that's it. That's as clear a picture of it as we can get this side of Scripture. You're not saying, however, that he is the one who is to come. You're saying that he is one of many that have come. And here I'm thinking of 1 John 2.18, where Scripture says, children, it is the last hour. Now, this is written in the first century, and John is saying, it's the last hour then. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Then he goes on to define who they were in verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Now, that might surprise some evangelical Bible readers who think of the Antichrist as an entirely future phenomenon that already there have been Antichrists, according to the Apostle John. Now, that's a very important question, and I spent a lot of time in the Man of Sin fleshing out the difference between the biblical usage of the word Antichrist, which is, as you point out, used only four times in John's first two epistles, in reference to not even a specific individual, but to heretics who have gone out from the Church, probably teaching some sort of a proto-Gnostic idea that denied that Jesus was God in the flesh, and John speaks of them as, as antichrists in the plural. He speaks of them as denying the faith, and so he's calling them heretics. That fits very nicely with Jesus' warnings in the Olivet Discourse about there'll be false teachers and false prophets. We'll say, here he is, he's come, and so on. So that is a, is a first-century phenomena, a second-century phenomena, a 20th-century phenomena, a 21st-century phenomena. The Church is always going to be up against these kinds of antichrists. The theological usage of the term Antichrist refers to the final manifestation of this spirit of Antichrist, this principle that's already at work, as Paul describes it in 2 Thessalonians 2. Only the final manifestation is when the state is given the authority by the dragon, Satan, to persecute the people of God. And the series of Antichrists, these heretics, give way to one final arch-heretic, and you could conceive of this in many ways. A lot of our writers in the past have thought, with some bit of reservation, but privately I think would be willing to say Islam fits the bill perfectly. There are others who could conceive of this as a secular state, where we're tired of religious wars, we're tired of this church and that church, this religion, that religion, fighting, no more religion, period. You can conceive of it as a, as a caliphate, you could conceive of it as a secular state, you could conceive of it as the imperial cult, uh, where the, the leader of the state uh, ascribes divinity to himself, insists that people worship him rather than Christ. You can see it taking any one of those forms, but at the end of the day, what it is, is that spirit of Antichrist already present in the first century, uh, manifesting itself again and again in the course of history, but because this is not God's time, the restrainer prevents it from coming to full flower, I take the restrainer to be the preaching of the gospel and the providence of God. And at some point in God's timetable, he says, okay, this is the end. And according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this person is manifested to be destroyed. 
the final manifestation, the personification of evil, this last end times antichrist, the culmination of this whole string of antichrist tells us this is the end. And Gerhardus Voss, you know, at the end of the day, in his Pauline Eschatology, which is a really difficult book for people to read and understand, it's a, it's a brilliant book and a great book, at the end of the day he gives us the simplest answer. He says, look, the people of God are going to know it when they see it. So don't speculate about it, don't guess about it. When this finally happens, you're going to know. It's as simple as that. And I, I think we take Voss at his word. That's the best counsel we have. So there is a way of accounting for all those places in Scripture to which our evangelical friends appeal. Absolutely. Gog and Magog, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, the man of lawlessness or the man of sin in the New Testament, all those things are accounted for in your book, The Man of Sin, Uncovering the Truth About the Antichrist. Kim, this is fantastic. It's excellent work. These are great companion volumes, this volume and your volume, A Case for Amillennialism. So if folks identify themselves as Reformed, but they're coming out of a more broadly evangelical background, perhaps they've been to dispensational Bible conferences, they've been to eschatology conferences, and they know there must be a different way of reading Scripture, and they feel some tension between what they're hearing in their Reformed congregation and what they used to think, but they don't really know how to resolve it all, well, here it is in these two volumes, A Case for Amillennialism and The Man of Sin. What seems to me to be distinct about this second book is that you do what dispensationalists have sometimes said Reformed theology can't do, and that is account for all of these kinds of passages, the the 70th week in Daniel 9, Gog and Magog, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Well, not only do I think we can account for them, I think we make much better sense of them. And I say that as someone who was formerly a dispensationalist and who tried for you know, much of my earlier adult life to make sense of those passages. When I first read Curtis Voss and some of the other reform writers on this, it was like the three cherries and the slot machine lining up, you know, and all of a sudden the drawer opens and there's all the money. It made sense, and, and there was this Kairos moment where everything clicked. And I think we make better sense of the text than they can. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.